Another part of the reason why 98 happened and the, you know, was actually because it was the accumulation of many previous strands. So when we were starting in 98, we were not starting from scratch. We were building on a lot of uh, you know, concepts uh, which were already tried. And as you say quite rightly, David, the, the centrality of the two governments working uh, together, uh, that really was the foundation stone. Hello and welcome to this month's Aaron's podcast. This podcast will be going out on the 7th of April, i.e. just three days before the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. So I'm departing a bit from usual practice in not basing the podcast on a specific article published as part of the Aaron's series. I'm really delighted to be joined by two former colleagues of mine today, uh, two former bosses, in fact, it has to be said, um, both of whom played a major role um, in the Good Friday Agreement uh, and subsequently. Um, David Donoghue um, was involved in the Anglo-Irish Division uh, and in Anglo-Irish Matters uh, at many points during his career. In 1998, he was the uh, Irish Joint Secretary of the Anglo-Irish Intergovernmental Conference. Uh, and as such, being based in Belfast, he was an ever-present at the talks. He has, in fact, recently published an excellent book, warmly recommended, called One Good Day, which is an account uh, of the talks. Uh, after leaving Belfast, David went on to be ambassador uh, to Russia, uh, to Austria, to Germany, uh, and eventually at the United Nations in New York, where he was very much involved in the negotiation of the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, my other guest is Tim O'Connor. Uh, Tim also, like David, a, a long-term officer of the Department of Foreign Affairs and with a lot of experience in the Anglo-Irish area. In 1998, he was the head of a, a drafting team based in Dublin, of which I was a member, a team put together by our uh, boss, the, the late Dermot Gallagher. And after the Good Friday Agreement, Tim, and indeed I, spent another year or so working, A, on the North-South institutions, on establishing them, and secondly, on efforts to, to get the institutions actually launched uh, after the uh, uh, after the agreement itself, which didn't happen until December 1999. Uh, thereafter, Tim was the first Irish Joint Secretary of the North-South Ministerial Council in Armagh. And after that, he was Irish Consul General in New York and also then Secretary General to President McAleese. Um, and he's still uh, very much uh, involved in matters of Northern Ireland. In particular, he's the Irish government's representative on the Independent Reporting Commission on Paramilitarism, which was established in 2017. So you're most welcome, both of you. Thank you, Rory. Um, That's right. I suppose the first question I wanted to ask is this, and maybe, maybe David, you want to kick off. Why did the Good Friday Agreement actually happen? Um, you know, what was necessary to make it happen? And why did it happen when it did 25 years ago? Sure, Roy. First of all, it's a great pleasure to be here with you and indeed with another old friend and colleague, Tim O'Connor. Um, uh, why, why did it happen at all? I think really that by the early 90s, um, if you think of the conflict in terms of purely military gains uh, or, or, or lack of them, 
the Republican movement had got really very, uh, it had not got very far, but equally the British Army and the security forces also had not got very far. You had, in effect, a, a military stalemate. So I think that was weighing on the minds of some in the Republican movement who felt that perhaps um, the time had come to explore uh, alternatives. There was also a sense of the time of a generation passing that you already had had, let's say, the best part of 25 years of of uh, what they would call war, and that maybe uh, in, in, as part of natural evolution, some other route had to be considered. We've just come from uh, uh, the funeral of a former colleague where the phrase, a time uh, for peace, was mentioned. And I think in some ways that sums up the mood in the early 90s. You then had a uh, an Irish government which from the late 80s on had been solidly looking for ways of um, uh, for fresh approaches, we'll say, which went beyond the um, the the Anglo-Irish agreement uh, and the particular uh, structure that that involved. You had a British government which, against the odds in a sense, or against the parliamentary arithmetic, was devoted was was also keen to look at the broader picture. Um, you had a supportive U.S. president. I think in the time of Roy, I, I won't say much more than that, but you had a number of favourable factors which were aligned. As to why we got it in the late 90s, I suppose it was the combination of those various factors, though as all three of us will remember, it was touch and go whether we would get it at all on Good Friday of 1998. It could easily have collapsed, but I think really the the combined uh, uh, impact of those factors I mentioned. I should perhaps add in also that unionism was looking for, uh, I mean, at least some of them were looking for devolution uh, to be to be restored or at least to be created. Um, and I think there was a sense that uh, they wanted to see a new political agreement which would enable their political aspirations to be to be satisfied. So, Really, all of this came together in the late 90s. Yeah, as you said, David, I mean, obviously, the uh, the negotiations, I suppose, involved two very broad tracks. You, you had the track dealing with the consequences of conflict, if you want to call it that, primarily focused on the government's relationships with, with Sinn Féin and the Republican movement and loyalism to an extent. And then, of course, there was a constitutional political track um, to which a number of, of political parties in Northern Ireland had been dedicated over quite a time. And Tim, you were particularly close with the late Seamus Mallon and, and the SDLP. So maybe you might say a bit about the extent to which they were ready um, for uh, for negotiations and for the outcome which, um, which emerged. Great. Well, first of all, Rory, thank you. I'd like to join with David and thank you for uh, inviting us to participate in the Arns podcast. Great to be here with with you and with with David, and well done to you and the and the work you're doing in the podcast. Um, yeah, I I think that David has summed it up quite well there in this kind of gathering together. I'd call it like this confluence of events and people. I think there was a kind of a confluence of events and people at the same time, which kind of made almost you know we talk about the vicious circle of violence, but but actually there was a kind of a virtuous circle just happened as you say rightly, David, just about came together at that time, and um, and I, I I want to come to to Seamus now, but just if I could just say that I think as well, Rory, there was um, a dimension of fatigue. I mean, it it uh, I've always struck by this great phrase I saw from Abba Eben the 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 famous Israeli foreign minister in the 60s when he said, men and nations do behave wisely once all other alternatives have been exhausted. Uh, 
and I think that there was a uh, there was a there was a bit of a way in which that was the case for because I think you have to look at uh, you have to look at the situation of all the different players you know in in the on the landscape and for different reasons I think fatigue had set in you know the 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 kind of the status quo um, actually was no longer really doing it for for people and um my own, I, i've i've developed this this kind of phrase myself from kind of conflict generally that a peace agreement will happen in a conflict when a critical minimum on both sides of the conflict come to the view that actually their best interests their selfish best interests are better served by a deal than staying with the status quo that moment that kind of critical moment has to be reached i think and we were heading towards that i feel and then the final bit of it i would say is the confluence of people i mean i think we were lucky with with certain key leaders obviously particularly obviously bertie hearn as the young new Taoiseach, tony blair as the young new prime minister and bill clinton as the youngish uh, american president all three of them with with a you know with a, with a lot of political capital so again and with the freedom to exercise that political capital so i think it's this confluence of people and then i think you're right you know the the i suppose and you were very much part of all of this as well the the theological evolution uh, you know of the concepts involved you know the, the SDLP were certainly were key drivers of if you like the theology of the evolving of a peace process all the way from the early 70s so John Hume and Seamus Mallon sadly both of them gone and you know uh, that's one of the things I suppose we mark on a 25th anniversary how many of the key players sadly are no longer with us and we, we remember them all and we thank them because we're the beneficiaries but as you say I was particularly close to, to Seamus um Malin, who, who died three years ago, and I suppose what their their particular and working very closely with like this brotherly relationship with with John Hume is that you know it was that actually this conflict could only be resolved on the basis of accommodation of difference, which was a very kind of uh, new concept because let's face it that the contestation was between two great political philosophies, nationalism and unionism. And it was about victory and defeat. And it was, you know, Northern Ireland is British. No, Northern Ireland is Irish. And Hume began to develop this this kind of sense that it was actually not about territory. It was actually about people and it was about accommodation of difference. And I think the the the, the concepts that he had developed, you know, back in the in the 70s and into the 80s and 90s, the three strands, the tort, you know, and and um, um, and then ultimately the, the the notion of a of a simultaneous referenda. So I think that the the intellectual heft was was coming. Let's face it, for, and certainly for me, that that's who I looked to. You know, John Hume, Seamus Mallon, and Dermot Gallagher, the Lord of Mercy, would always say, you know, I take my that's where I take my cue from. So so there was a kind of an intellectual pathway that was now evolving as well. Uh, and then, of course, I'd say finally uh, that that whole Hume Hume Adams dialogue in the late eighties was a critical part of uh, of all of that journey as well. That that uh, the the dialogue between Jerry Adams and John Hume in particular, um, you know, that there was beginning to be another confluence of um, that there was a pathway towards a way forward which uh, which didn't have to involve uh, armed struggle. Yeah, absolutely, and of course, David already alluded to this. Um, another person we were very fortunate to have, even though he wasn't always the easiest in the world to deal with. It was David Trimble, mm -hmm. um, because I've often thought that if he hadn't been elected leader of the Unionist Party in well, September sorry. '95, um, you know, it's quite hard to imagine that any of the alternatives well, would have been as as bold as he was. 
And in a way, it was partly, I think, because he wasn't a very good politician in the conventional sense that he was able to take risks and indeed prepared to divide his his party. Um, well, well I, I suppose, I mean, just one other factor here. I mean, there had been, and, and David might comment on this because he was involved, uh, there had been, of course, quite extensive political talks in 91, 92 involving the so-called constitutional parties and the two governments and the three strands idea was was first sort of like officially, um, officially launched. sort of launched and endorsed. Then uh, you also had recognition of, of of other issues which has to be dealt with, but they didn't work. Um, and in hindsight, do you think it would have been impossible for there to have been an agreement between the political parties, the constitutional political parties, without there being as it were, a peace process yeah. at the same time? Um, I think it would have been impossible for it to work without a peace process in parallel. And in, in a way, that was the the, the key insight in the, in the 90s, that we had tried in the 80s with the, good, with the Anglo-Irish agreement to have an agreement supported by two governments and the so-called constitutional parties. But we were very conspicuously leaving out those who were allied to uh, to, to militancy and, 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 uh, and frankly, paramilitary violence. It, the insight gradually caught hold but in the late 80s, early 90s that we would have to have a wider table than that. We would have to have all parties at the table on the basis, of course, of, of a shared commitment to peace and politics if we were to uh, get an outcome which would be stable. There was no point having a party at the table which would be looking over its shoulder metaphorically at, at the hard men behind behind them and, and unable to move lest they are lest they would pay a political price. It was easier, more efficient uh, uh, to have an inclusive task process and that insight was gradually agreed to or accepted by both governments and taken forward really uh, from the early 90s on. So I think that the the talks in 91, 92 were a useful first step um, where a number of concepts were were tried out and 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 we we reached consensus, for example, on the notion of of, of three strands, as as you and Tim were mentioning. Uh, also, on this idea that nothing is agreed till everything is agreed, the idea of a, an incremental process. There were a number of important negotiating techniques and 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 approaches which um, we managed to develop through the talks in ninety two. However. Um, for for a mixture of reasons, they didn't go far enough. We we barely got into the 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 uh, strands two and three. Uh, it was essentially focused on on strand one. And uh, now some useful ground was covered, and we were able to build on that later on. But I I saw those talks, Rory, as really the uh, a sort of first outing. But they were not actually going to get to the heart of the matter. I suppose Tim is sorry, Tim, yes. Yes, could I just add from that, I think that's a very good point. I, I just add to that, Rory, that I suppose we had the Anglo-Irish Agreement uh, in, in 1985, which was in its own way, you know, was was progress and without question. But what was very clear, though, it didn't actually solve the problem. You know, violence continued. In fact, you know, got worse for a while afterwards. So at one level, while the Anglo-Irish Agreement was a really important stepping stone, it didn't achieve what what everybody wanted, which is the end of violence and and the return of peace. So I suppose always we were we knew that the Anglo Irish Agreement wasn't a complete agreement because the parties weren't uh, party to to it. So I think that everybody knew, like you know, we we have the progress made from the Anglo Irish Agreement. We bank that. We we consolidate that. We move forward. 
But it was very, very clear that from that time on, you still have to work a process that is going to involve uh, the parties uh, participating in it. And then, as David is saying there, the, the gradual evolution that, however unpalatable as the as the thought might be, we are going to probably have to, um, we are going to have to open an engagement with, with those uh, essentially supporting violence. And that was a, that was a Rubicon. And you, you, you recall, I mean, that, that was a big, big Rubicon. And I think to this day is still controversial. And there were many, many people for whom this was just a moral bridge too far. Uh, that, but that I think was a was a key. That was a key m- moment, and I think it's an interesting point as to uh, how that came about. But that was that was the to me that was the key to unlocking the, what eventually became the, the Good Friday Agreement. If, if I may, Roy, I just add uh, a comment to. I mean, I agree with everything Tim has said. Um, I think the most important positive about the Anglo-Irish Agreement was that it established a habit of partnership between the two governments, which hadn't been there before and which has guided everything since. So even if there was relatively little to show in terms of uh, balance sheets, you know, after a couple of years, the fact of the matter was that the Irish and British governments working together was seen to be the only way forward. And out of that then came in the 90s a couple of landmark documents which uh, were essentially delivered by the two governments. And that, I think, was the most important gain from the Anglo-Irish Agreement. No, absolutely. And the point you made, Tim, about, you know, differing levels of enthusiasm, if you could put it like that, mm-hmm. for the engagement with mm-hmm. uh, with Sinn Féin and republicanism, absolutely. very visible within the STLP Correct. itself and between Hume and Mallon. You Correct. spoke of them as brothers, but brothers yes, don't yes, always agree. As we, that was my thought, as I was as saying, Rory. As, <laughs> we, as, as, as we know, but of course, also the Anglo-Irish Agreement. The other, uh, I suppose, important as- aspect of it was that um, uh, you know the Unionists so resented it that the desire to find an alternative which would subsume and supersede um, the and to be perfectly honest, Roy, yeah. that was um, that was really part of the calculation all along. As you yeah. know, that it was always intended that there would be an incentive built into the Anglo-Irish Agreement directed at the Unionists. which said, in effect, if you don't like this agreement, you have the capacity to negotiate a new and more broadly based agreement. Um, So we we knew all along that, uh, if you like, we were were providing bait or providing an incentive um, to move beyond it. And um, uh, so it, it... that didn't come about by accident. Is there is it true to say as well that on that that Rory and you're kind of you're you're kind of hinting it there as as you're uh, building the story that actually the the another part of the reason why ninety eight happened and the, you know was actually because it was the accumulation of many previous strands. So when we were starting in ninety eight, we were not starting from scratch. We were building on a lot of uh, you know concepts uh, which were already tried and as you say quite rightly, David the. The centrality of the two governments working uh, together, uh, that really was the foundation stone. So there were several elements already tried, but they hadn't quite, you know, it, 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 you know, it was, it hadn't quite, um, it hadn't quite sort of made the breakthrough and the final. But so I think it's important to understand that Good Friday is a, you know, is a, is accumulation. It's a, it is a kind of a cumulative moment on a lot of different elements of trans. We were standing on the the shoulders of the giants, and in some kind of way, there were echoes. It weren't there, Rory, of of Sunningdale, you know, which had, which was twenty five years before, which had, you know, failed. But but actually, you know, Sunningdale for slow learners. Uh, anybody, you know, thank you, David. As I mentioned earlier, you've written, you've literally written the book um, on the negotiations. 
but maybe just in, in conceptual terms, you might say a little about the dynamics, I suppose. And, and what always struck me, I suppose, and this is brought out in your book, is that there was a, a formal part of the negotiations with structures and rules of procedure and all of that. And then there was the really intense sort of interaction below the surface between the two governments in particular, but also with with parties. Maybe you might just like to say a little about about how those elements interacted. Absolutely. Well, if I think about the amount of time and energy uh, devoted to getting rules of procedure for uh, essentially kind of plenary type talks, rules of procedure which, which we never really needed. I mean, the truth is that until... Uh, maybe the last couple of weeks before Good Friday 1998, we were in the doldrums. We had lengthy plenary sessions where people just simply restated their positions, where they played to the gallery. There was a lot of frustration, in fact, because parties were not actually getting to their bottom lines. In a sense, the plenary format, the, the theatrical aspect of it, held them up. The, the deals were waiting to be done, but they weren't actually done until, I would guess, about the last two weeks. Um, and then they were done in in, in the corridors. They were done in entirely uh, informal ways, as happens in negotiations all over the world. So, in a sense, there was a disconnect between the elaborate structure that we had to put in place based on respect for everybody's position. Um, uh, and here, certain parties were particularly uh, um, uh, active in, in, in trying to get the, the, the best possible rules for the uh, for the talks but ultimately the deals were done elsewhere um the the uh, there was a lot of frustration you'll both remember i mean fr- the talks officially began in october of 1997 in the sense well, in that in fact they they'd even in, begun in june 96 yeah. without it, 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 it depends okay. yes uh, i suppose what you're right it, to my mind the fact that we had Sinn Féin and the units at the table as of October or as of September 97, that was for me important. But technically, of course, I mean, there were still two parties missing in a strict sense in the autumn of 97. They were the the DUP and the UKUP, but they had chosen to absent themselves. But, But in terms of the key um, you know, constituencies being represented I, I personally dated from September of 97 but from that point on we had on, up to Christmas very little engagement uh, a lot of grandstanding very little progress and the same really from uh, the, during the spring there were delays because of uh, parties being excluded for infringement of the Mitchell principle. So it meant that for one reason or another, we didn't really get anywhere near action stations until about um, March. March. I'd call it it the 11th hour syndrome because, you you know, you're you're a very experienced international negotiator as well. And ultimately, kind of everybody knows, I'd agree with everything David has just said there, everybody knows that if there's going to be a deal, it will be at the 11th hour. So there was a little bit of a way in, okay, let's get to the 11th hour. And we found a way get to the 11th hour, how? Through George Mitchell's deadline. And I think that that this turns out to be a kind of a critical moment looking back. Now, deadlines are, they're a gamble, they're high wire, and they don't, you know, you can only, it's almost a card you can only play once. But if you recall, I mean, George did call us all together in that, uh, I'll I'll never forget it, that I'm paraphrasing slightly now here, but it went something like this. He gathered all of the delegations into a plenary session around the 20th of March, I think, um, And I think the speech went something like this. I've been with you now for three years. It's been fascinating. I've heard your stories. They're amazing. And uh, they've been utterly uh, engrossing. 
and and I'm sure there are many many more stories where those came from. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, a son has been born to me in New York, and I would like to see him before he goes to college. So I am declaring the time has come for um, an end to our discussions, and that the time for decisions has arrived. So I am declaring a deadline uh, to, of these talks for the Thursday, the 9th of, of April. That was about two and a half, three weeks away. And that actually was, in many ways, looking back on it, the catalyst then for yeah. And and by the way, he 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 conveyed very clearly. George Mitchell had a way, you know. He had conveyed very clearly he was serious. No, you're absolutely right, Tim. I mean, the, the two governments, of course, also were planning some kind of cutoff point for legal bureaucratic reasons uh, uh, to do with referendums and so on. But you're absolutely right. George Mitchell, in effect, applied a kind of emotional blackmail. He did. Um, uh, but it was clever. It was effective. Uh, he was popular. That helped. It meant yes, that absolutely. The, yeah. So it meant that he was, in effect, saying, my son, Andrew, is only a few months old. I've barely seen him. Uh, I'm going back at Easter and I'm not to New York and I'm not coming back. Now, whether that was a uh, a, a seriously meant <laughs> threat or whether it was a, 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 but it had an, a it device, had, it, it had, had an effect. It, it had, meant it that we all worked extremely hard to try and do it by the Thursday evening. We didn't quite make it, but we all knew, I think, that it wasn't going to go into the Easter weekend. Mm-hmm. I think we knew right. Friday was yes. the absolute cutoff point. Yes. Well, Tony Blair was also extremely eager to get off on his uh, Easter holidays in Spain, as I That's recall, right. and he almost had to be sort of held down to be reminded that the uh, there was an agreement to be signed. Um, I suppose it always struck me about George Mitchell that, um, as well as that really important role, that he wasn't in the end that much involved in the substantive text of the agreement. But throughout the process, I mean, first of all, he had given his name to these principles, um, which were really important, which he negotiated along with Harry Halkery and, and John de Cheslin. But secondly, he was an exceptionally dignified um, and effective communicator, both inside the room and with the public. Mm-hmm. And I think he gave the public a belief mm-hmm. that a this point, was a serious right. process That's for, a good for, point. For, for grown-ups. You and know? he was able to articulate you know, what was at stake here Brilliantly. in a very dignified way that actually was, you couldn't push back on a word of it. But also with tremendous clarity. Yeah, exactly um, just saying, just yeah. One, one very small anecdote. George Mitchell came to this body in Dublin, the Forum for Peace and Reconciliation, which Tim and I were both involved with, which was set up after the IRA ceasefire, to provide a kind of room for discussion before negotiations proper began. Um, and we had the job of um, publishing sort of like parliamentary reports almost of what um, the speakers had said and we took it in turns to edit uh, what they had to say. <laughs> and I have to say of all the ones I edited, the one who needed the least editing um, was George Mitchell. That's he spoke in lovely sentences with full stops and I commas. I could anticipate that, that punch. But I will yes. tell you but I won't tell you who is the hardest to... Uh, uh, I do, <laughs> no, 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 I can't do that. Um, all I'll say is he's he's no longer living. Um, right, now, right, just right. if I may then move on. Um, I mean, again, conscious of time, there's a huge amount we could we could we 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 could talk about. I mean, the what would you say then, looking at it from this distance? What would you say are the greatest kind of strengths and achievements of the of the agreement? Twenty five years on, Tim. Yeah. Thanks. For, I always answer this question with a simple sentence. We found a way to stop the killing. I think that is the single biggest. And uh, today, you know, 25 years later, you'd almost be saying, well, what's the big deal about that? But that wasn't at all inevitable at the time. And as even as David was saying there about the, you know, the 
the the torment of the negotiations that was it was it was it was of course the negotiations and the talks even after october 97 uh were accompanied by 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 terrible stuff happening on the ground including uh, several murders and the the uh, billy wright uh, during the um the, the leader of the lvf uh, o- over christmas and then the 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 two murders in points pass in in march i mean the so there, there was so so the, the the cycle this this vicious cycle of violence was continuing all the way even even like during the negotiations itself so that we have now of course I, when I say that we start, found a way to stop the killing that's not true in absolute terms and sadly the the worst atrocity of the whole troubles came a few months later in um, in Oma but um, but but nonetheless it is substantially true. And I suppose against a conflict that was was so deeply embedded, I, I was doing the stats recently as to, you know, three three thousand seven hundred deaths. What that the equivalent of that in in Britain in Great Britain terms would be one hundred thirty thousand people. So one hundred thirty thousand deaths would be the kind of that's so that's so I think find that we found a way to effectively bring. Uh, that to an end, I think, is the single greatest achievement of the agreement. And I think the second one is the second biggest achievement is that we more or less we have more or less mapped out the space where this gets resolved. Now we we, we know that what the history of the twenty five years since has been, uh, and we know what the situation is right now. The the institution, the assembly, and the executive are down. But nonetheless, nobody actually can can gain say that. The the solution here to this very intractable age old centuries old whatever metric you want to use or of time that it's roughly speaking in this you know, and if you don't like the Good Friday Agreement and if you don't like well then come up with an alternative my friend that will actually still meet the same test which is roughly uh, that has to um, has to achieve the approval of of both sides and guess where that will end you up more or less back where the agreement is so i think we have mapped out the territory and we have mapped out the pathway forward um obviously getting com- you know com- the, the task of 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 um of of total peace and reconciliation and and and, and certainly re- the reconciliation part of peace and reconciliation um has proved more elusive and is a longer journey and we're we're learning a lot about that but i but i think those are the the two key achievements in my view of of the agreement yeah i think if i if i focus on the actual qualities of the agreement itself as distinct from the disappointments of the intervening 25 years if I look at what we all achieved that time I, I very much agree with Tim that I, I would think of it as an absolute commitment to peaceful politics so all those sitting around the table were agreed that uh, political uh, change could only happen on the basis of a commitment to peaceful politics and it was an absolute commitment, as we know from the fact that anybody perceived to be uh, infringing it was expelled temporarily, at least. So, so I think the, 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 the making clear that nothing would happen unless uh, there was a commitment to, to peaceful, uh, to peaceful change. That 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 was that was very important. The institutions, um, on the whole, have been proven to uh, be the right ones. I, I, I say that carefully because, of course, what, I mean, perhaps we'll come on to it. There exactly. Could yeah. be, there could be, uh, there are weaknesses here and there, but but in fundamentally, I thought at the time that we would find that the that some of the institutions were 
being were, were, were perceived to be flawed and so on. We didn't really get that. It was only in the last few years uh, that people have begun to say we that sectarianism is being institutionalised. But for long periods, nobody was challenging the actual institution. So really picking up on what Tim was saying, the, the we got we got peace. We got uh, the possibility of constitutional change only by peaceful means. We got a set of institutions which. Um, uh, have been seen to be the right ones. We move on to the institutions, indeed, in a in a moment, if we may. But I suppose there will be some critics of the agreement who would say, "Well, there was a huge focus on the constitutional and institutional side of things, but there were other important matters which were kind of left to one side." And you know, we've seen in the interim you know, that these were important questions and you mentioned sectarianism and reconciliation. Another would clearly be how to deal with the legacy of the past. Uh, and I think there are different views about this. I mean, would it have been possible to have done anything more meaningful um, or would it simply have overloaded the mm. agenda excessively? I mean, that's a very, Tim, yeah. that's a fair question. Robert. I mean, let's just take legacy. So my own, and I, I, I can't, I can't cite you on this uh, August podcast, which is, uh, you know, academically based, I, I can't cite an academic basis for what I'm going to say now, but I, I actually feel myself that legacy would not have been possible at the time. And you know why? Because because it still wasn't absolutely clear to us that that the conflict was over. And to me, legacy is something that takes place, you know, once there's a, a broad agreement, the conflict in question is over and you can now, because if, if the, if, if you if if the con- the conflict is continuing, then legacy is almost like well we're we're actually we're our our focus is actually right now on staying alive. Legacy is a kind of a it's a consequential piece that you do in terms at the end of a conflict, and and so I would think that uh, and you were both there as well. It was so fraught and so difficult, and we've all agreed that we only just barely made it, and you know George Mitchell's deadline, and let's face it, you know at any particular moment. Things could have broken down and we knew that if they broke down, it would be a return to not just the status quo ante, but but worse, because the feeling would be that, you know, that this was the best chance for a deal and it has it has collapsed. So let the, let the chips fall where they may. So I think that we were it was almost I think you're right in saying that this is what this is what the marketplace would bear, I think. Um, and don't forget that in the negotiations, things were so fraught that key negotiators weren't even speaking directly to each other. So we actually managed to get a deal done without actually people talking directly to each other. And um, I, I have a little private joke with George Mitchell. I said, George, um, I have I have figured it out. Uh, the, the the Good Friday Agreement is the Irish Agreement. First we signed it, then we negotiated it, because actually a lot of the the key stuff as we and um, so so sorry. I, so I think that while we didn't, I think we dealt with what we could have dealt with. Just about, I think getting uh, getting a consensus, roughly speaking, I agree with David there on the on the on you on the constitutional issues. That was a key, uh, you know, foundation stone for everything that 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 happened on on, on top of that. Uh, and then um, I think I like your distinction between the political process of the institutions and then the peace dimensions. And of course, what we did in terms of the peace process, the ending of conflict, you know, like around prisoners, around decommissioning, around demilitarization, around policing, around justice. They were, of course, very controversial and difficult so, issues. Very, very, very much. Uh, I, I think one um, strength was undoubtedly that we managed to agree the constitutional issues 
ahead of the final Good Friday Agreement negotiations. So the two governments obviously had reached their own agreement in the Downing Street Declaration and the Framework document, but we got the parties progressively to buy into those. And in fact, if anything, unionism didn't really have a problem with the constitutional statement in the framework document or the Dynastic Declaration. It was more the institutional implications. So constitutional stuff already done, roughly speaking, before we got to the finale. I think that was important. There are weaknesses in the agreement, Roy, that, that, and Tim has, has has touched on them. We we had to um, we had to fudge a number of areas where there was insufficient consensus at the time. Uh, we had to kick a few things down the road. When I say had to, perhaps we always knew that, that would be the wise approach anyway. So whether it was policing, criminal justice, prisoners, we all North we were South. going to all we North were going South. to. Yes, although arguably we went into a fair amount of detail on on I see what you mean, Tim, the policy areas exactly, yeah. But the, the but the but I mean coming back to Rory's main point that we did spend an inordinate amount of time on the the um, the, the, the the basic institutional uh, principles for the three strands, and not perhaps enough time on say economic and social issues. Certainly not enough on legacy, as Tim was saying, and and the, the victims and uh, and I know that loyalism has often felt that there was not enough in terms of the interests at local, at grassroots level, at, you know, the, the, the importance of community um, um, and we didn't politics. Deal with, and we didn't deal with local government. We didn't actually really... There were a lot of things that we didn't get to. You know? So, um, uh, uh, I, I think somebody made the point that arguably we simply we, we could not have done much better. I mean, decommissioning, we may perhaps get into that or not. Yes. Decommissioning is a classic example of where we had to fudge it uh, because the market would only bear that. And so no matter how frustrating it was for the subsequent few years, um, we had to live with the language which we had managed to get agreement on on Good Friday, uh, even though it clearly raised questions to which there were no early answers. Uh, but that was simply a necessary price to get overall agreement on uh, on Good Friday. Yeah, my own view on legacy is that Again, it, it couldn't have been done at the time. Um, there are people, as in Colombia, for example, South Africa, who've set up quite elaborate structures, which are making some headway in the Colombian case, but there are still many, many unresolved issues. Again, the late Dermot Gallagher, to whom we referred earlier, he was always strongly of the view that Ireland was too small a place and the wounds were too raw at that time uh, to do anything very substantial. I suppose the real missed opportunity was probably the Eames-Bradley proposals of a decade or so later. But on weaknesses, uh, and maybe Tim might, might might talk to this, and David has spoken about decommissioning, um, and this is linked again in my mind to the question of the paradox that the two parties which were central in negotiating the agreement, the ultra-unionist party and the SDLP, have been progressively reduced in strength and size and, and pushed to the, the edges um, and again, if I just my own view is that uh, you know there was a there was an opportunity, there should have been an opportunity to deal with decommissioning more decisively, not in nineteen ninety eight, but in late nineteen ninety nine, when we were finding a basis for the institutions to go go live. But would you would you agree, Tim, or what would your view be of why the UUP and the SDLP kind of weakened so quickly in relative terms? 
Maybe it's it's a very complex question, and I, I I'm going to I don't know what you both felt. You were both in the middle of it at the time. I certainly did not foresee that that was going to be happening. I mean, I would have never have thought. So I think we need to say to your listeners that it wasn't to us certainly, or else we were we were having. It, it was not at all clear. Certainly to me. Okay, I'll just speak for myself. It was not clear to me that five years later, uh, five years after the agreement that both the SDLP and the Ulster Unionists, who were the key, key players, as you say, you know, here, would have been supplanted. Uh, I, I frankly never saw that coming. So therefore, the question now is with the benefit of uh, 25 years of hindsight, what, what happened? I can only, I can only conclude that uh, we perhaps, uh, and maybe again, we have to cut ourselves a bit of slack, the best we could achieve was just about getting an agreement and you were there, Rory, with the, you, you handled the, 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 the signing ceremony for, for the Taoiseach and the, the Prime Minister. We just barely got the document, you know, then, and so that you could hand a pen to, to Taoiseachs and Prime Minister to sign. I mean, wasn't there an absolute sense of let's, let's, let's do this quickly and go before anything else falls apart? And even that last day, Good Friday itself, I mean, one of the most nerve-wracking days uh, where it looked like it was, you know, the pessimist charter was in full flow. It looks like, ah, it was too much to expect. It's gone. We're, it's over. And and uh, it, to me, the miracle of Good Friday is that somehow David Trimble, uh, to his eternal credit, found a way to to say yes, basically. that That's what was needed. So I... So it seems to me then, therefore, that having just got it over the line, I think we underestimated that what was now about to begin, that actually the agreement wasn't an end at all. It was just a beginning. And that what it was kicking off was was a new contestation, I call it. You know, the contestation between the two political philosophies were, was, were, were it, it looks like we're, we're going to continue in full flow, reflected, I think, in the differing attitudes on the decommissioning issue, which were the immovable object and the irresistible force. As far as the Republican movement was concerned, we'll call it that, uh, you know, not an ounce, not a bullet. You didn't achieve uh, our surrender in the battlefield. You're not going to achieve it now with a pen, uh, you know. So so basically that, uh, so philosophically and, you know, that, that there was no way that could be done. And then equally, you can see the validity of a, of a unionist position will say, well, look, if you guys are committed to peace as you say you are, why do you still need the guns? And there is no, there is no slam dunk logical answer to that so that kind of contestation so it was began to become clear that the contestation at the heart of the two political was actually going to continue and I think then therefore if that's the case and uh, if that's the case then we the, the strongest that you know the, the strongest the you know the, the strongest force on both sides is going to have to be what's in play here and you know I, I can only just conclude that it looks like both communities you know people on the ground in, in both communities said we're going for the the contestation is now uh, in full uh, in full flow here without the guns but we still need the strongest uh, we need the strongest force on our side. I'm I'm no more president than anybody else, and uh, certainly wasn't then. But um, I I had a, an inkling. I had a sense that Trimble would pay a political price for the fudge, what I call the fudge on decommissioning. I had that sense at the time. I didn't know exactly what price he would pay. I certainly didn't anticipate that he would eventually have to resign over several years later. But I felt that he would be he would be weakened by this fudge, though it was a necessary fudge. And um, uh, that doesn't mean that I liked or agreed with the position he took, but I just felt it was a matter of political reality that he would be weakened. And then turned what that meant was he 
didn't want to um, to uh, work for the full potential of the agreement because he was trying to get decommissioning front loaded as were. He was trying to get what Roy was saying, you know, in late 99, there was perhaps an opportunity. I mean, for the first few years of the agreement, David Trimble was looking for some way of getting progress on decommissioning, although the rest of us could see that that was unlikely to happen. In turn, I think that did infect the SDLP position because it meant that obviously the SDLP would have benefited if they had been able to demonstrate real uh, gains being made under the agreement um, with the SDLP and pole position in the Strand 1 arrangements. So I think uh, the SDLP suffered uh, from the fact that Trimble was weakened and that in turn went back to decommissioning. So you could see a sort of a continuous line from the necessary fudge on decommissioning uh, so that by 2003 both the UUP and the STLP were overtaken. Were, were, were overtaken. And uh, But I have to say, I ap- while I knew there was trouble ahead for Trimble in 1998, I absolutely would not have for- foreseen but then that, that Sinn Féin within five years would have overtaken the STLP. There is a possibility, just one other quick thought, right? there is a possibility I suppose as well that on the on the nationalist side that this is just a totally a, a theory that, that you know, nationalist Catholics started voting more for Sinn Féin also to consolidate the peace process. You know, that's a benign kind of that they, that look, we need to, we, we need, we, we don't want these people going back to, you know, uh, to war and therefore lock, lock them into politics. And um, that, that gives us our best chance. You know, that's a, I mean, yeah. I say that's just, no, a I mean, possi- uh, that's just a, a possibility. Uh, yeah. A couple of other thoughts which occur to me. Yeah. I mean, first, there's simply the practical question of political organisation um, that both Sinn Féin and the DUP in their own ways were much better run and more vigorous, um, I suppose, on the ground um, than were the others. And again, just you know, given what you said, when you look back at it, I mean, Trimble's position on decommissioning was absolutely um, rational from his point of view. I think it was also not unreasonable in terms of principle yes. by the end of 99, and he yes. was given to understand that something would be happening which didn't happen. Having said that, the fact that he focused so much um, on the decommissioning issue, placed the spotlight entirely on Sinn Féin and republicanism at, you know, to the, at the expense of the SDLP. And then he made all these demands and was seen not to be achieving them, and which, which allowed the DUP. So in a way, it was the worst of, he ended up in the worst of, uh, of with the most worst of both worlds, um, I suppose it's fair to say. Moving on now, I mean, David, you spoke a little bit earlier about the functioning of the institutions. And I think, you know, people are, are well aware of the problems um, in the Strand 1 institutions. Um, and we might come back to that briefly in a second. But Tim, you were absolutely central in the establishment of the North-South institutions. And as I said earlier, there you were for five years in Armagh, um, you know, getting them up and running and making them work. And of course, the Strand 2 issues were probably the most difficult things to resolve in the negotiation. Would you? Are you disappointed with how things have, have evolved since the dawn. No, no, Rory. And of course, to recall to your listeners, you played a, a key role as well in the negotiation because we did part of the way we got out of Good Friday uh, was, as you said, David, we kicked some things down the road. Well, we kicked a big one down the road in on Strand 2, which was that the identification of, uh, first of all, the number of cross-border bodies there would be and the, and the actuality of them, uh, you know, and, and what they would be and their powers. That was all a kick down the road to a further negotiation, which happened then in the course of the next uh, about a year, I think it took. 
and you and I, Rory, work very closely on that together uh, under the leadership of, of Dermot Gallagher and, and obviously with Wally Kerwin as well. So but we eventually got those uh, bodies agreed. And then you're right, after in, in, in December 99, I was I was sent to Armad and having negotiated the, the what the bodies were going to be, I was sent to, I went, I moved, what I say, from, from wholesale to retail, now get them up and running. The short answer is that... Um, you know, I, I I have to say just briefly, what was it like actually then running, you know, being involved in the running and establishment of the cross-border bodies? And actually, it was a, a very exciting time. And from scratch, against a backdrop of 75 years or whatever it was of, of very little cross-border cooperation, we now had a, a whole new tranche and a new, um, you know, and a new landscape and a new momentum behind cross. And actually, it was a very exciting time. And I, I, I can remember the, the number of meetings that we had, of ministerial meetings, against a backdrop of practically very little activity in the space of the, the less than three years between December 1999 and October uh, 2002 when unfortunately the executive was uh, suspended. In that less than three years we had 65 ministerial meetings of the North-South Ministerial Council and and I was at 63 of the 65 I think and every, every one of them were positive occasions where finally we got... Um, in David Trimble's words, you know, because you could say the, it could be said that the what brought down Sunningdale was the Council of Ireland, you know, that that would be the. Whereas, so how did how did we go from the Council of Ireland bringing down, um, you know, uh, Sunningdale to a situation where where we have North South cooperation, you know, flying forward? Frankly, certainly in those in those years, and David Trimble has part of the answer. I think he said. In regard to uh, North-South in the Good Friday Agreement, we got the architecture right. And I think that's a, that's a key point. The checks and the balances, all decisions by agreement, ministers from two sides, you know, even if, it's, say, the minister responsible on the northern side was from one tradition, they were always accompanied by uh, a minister from the other tradition who had nothing actually to do with the particular case, but that was part of the checks and balances. And uh, my, myself and the team in Arma, we had a, a couple of principles. One is one is the principle of no surprises. So the meetings were very carefully prepared. And uh, I can recall going to, like one of them was flags, you know, because a lot of the meetings were held in hotels. So careful preparation of the meetings uh, ahead of time. So no kind of untoward kind of events. And flags were a particular you know, the idea of a, an Ulster Unionist minister appearing under a tricolour in some hotel somewhere. Uh, gotcha. So, um, you know, a few weeks before each meeting, I go to the uh, I would go to the hotel manager and, you know, talk, talk through. But I can recall, I won't say where the hotel was and I'm having the conversation with the manager. And I said, no, sir, this is a very sensitive meeting and we, you know, we want everything. to, And I, I need to be particularly no flags, please. And he says to me, um, don't worry, sir, we don't even have a flagpole. <laughs> I said, I said yeah. so the relief that washed over me, Rory, you'll understand. But um, yeah, so look, I, th I think that it, uh, so I think cross-border cooperation, and I, I just mentioned Tourism Ireland. I mean, yes. tourism has been a phenomenal success. And a lot of people have just forgotten that Tourism Ireland is a creature, it's a child of the Good Friday Agreement. So tourism in Northern Ireland, it's a huge success there and, and, in, and in the rest of the island as well. And indeed, all the, the cross-border, but have they, have they final comment have they achieved all their potential no but I think what is the difference between where cross-border cooperation was 25 years ago and where it is today is night and day I suppose one of the disappointments is of course that there has never been what you might call enthusiastic buy-in on the part of the, the unionist party in the government yeah. it's funny a, a few years ago I, I had occasion to read the 
um, the the communiques of NSMC meetings, um, seriously, uh, from about 2008 through 2013, it was in regard to the financial crisis. But it, it appeared the only thing which the DUP seemed enthusiastic to talk about was the question of the NAMA holdings of property in Northern Ireland. They could see a religious there. Time is moving on. David, again, you hinted at this er earlier. Um, there are people who say that the Northern Ireland institutions, now the executive and the assembly, are somehow not fit for purpose and for two reasons. First of all, because it's open to one party or a majority party in one community effectively to block them functioning. Um, and secondly, because they don't adequately reflect, again, the the rise of you know others, um, neither nors in Northern Ireland. I mean, do you think there is any meaningful reform um, which is possible um, or is this simply a failure perhaps to understand the fundamentals of the agreement? Well, there are a number of uh, important points uh, wrapped up in that way. I mean, I, I think as a matter of analysis, it's clear that um, the arrangements we made in, in 98 uh, were valuable, in fact, essential at that time in the sense that they gave nationalists the reassurance that the that their tradition would be regarded as uh, completely legitimate and on equal terms with unionism and that that would be reflected in strand one arrangements. In other words, um, uh, agree, decision, key decisions would have to be taken by a majority in both communities. That was the analysis then. I still stick to that analysis. I'm not yet of the view that we should uh, alter that. I think that you cannot rely on the concept of voluntary coalition, uh, or at least you cannot yet rely on that. Perhaps in some dim and distant future that might be uh, viable, but I think that you still, broadly speaking, have 40% in Northern Ireland who uh, respect respectfully belong to each tradition. Uh, the 20% is growing. I mean, the, the other category to which you referred, it's not growing at a dramatic rate. Obviously, we'd have to await the the next elections and, and everybody can see that the demographics in Northern Ireland are changing. There are new issues on the political agenda. There are new voters who have different priorities. But in broad terms, I think that we still need to address the needs of what I would call the 40% and the 40%. That means I would not favour trying to move away uh, from... Uh, I don't want to be too absurd. I'm not saying that 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 we can't have some slight softening of the veto um, which is available at present. Uh, don't ask me in this podcast to go into detail about. It. I could imagine a couple of ways. You, so I could I could settle for something which would make it slightly easier to construct new uh, political combinations. Let's say I'm not using the word coalition. Um, but I wouldn't want to go too far away from it. I think that uh, a voluntary coalition would be a free fall which would un undermine much of the progress and much of the confidence that we've managed to, to build up. So the, 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 a key question is whether any rewriting of the agreement is possible, to use your term there. I mean, we, we had a unique set of circumstances in 98 where, you know, everything was pointing the right way. We had people uh, very, very uh, committed to reaching an overall agreement. We had two governments heavily engaged. We had a third supportive American president, etc. Everything was really aligned. Could we, and we had George Mitchell, could we reconstruct the same set of negotiation circumstances 
I doubt it. So therefore, even if we came up with a brilliant wheeze, which would somehow address the, the criticisms that we're talking about, and I don't think there is a brilliant wheeze, I don't. The, the political context for achieving a new agreement, I think, is missing. The governments cannot do it on their own, and that, that it has to be the two governments and the political parties. So that's really my way of saying I, I wouldn't want to stray very far from what we already have, and I'm not sure that even that is achievable as um, a change. uh, I don't think that we would have the right um, set of political circumstances. I mean, I suppose the key question, Tim, is could we imagine the institutions functioning successfully um, without the participation of the major representatives of each of the two communities? I think that's, unfortunately, I I wish it were the case, but that's impossible, I think, at the moment. I mean, I think David is is right that you know that the, and and we have to we have to respect you know the the equality and the the validity of every vote etc and that that's the, you know the, so so the answer to the, the, the there there isn't a straightforward answer as in many <laughs> and many questions in regard to the 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 peace process there's no straightforward simple answer and somebody who's looking for the simple soundbite you know it's a sorry it's just it's just not available. Um, the reason I say that as well is because I, I I would very much agree with David's overall thesis there, and it's eighty percent, twenty percent. So the other points I would make to you is that uh, we do have a review clause, as you recall, and it was written into the agreement. So the possibility of review and looking at it and doing, um, and I'm I'm recalling Seamus Mallon's dictum to us. Do you remember? I think you've heard him say this as well that. It is for each generation to write its own history. So you have to take that into account as well. So it's a generation later. What does that mean? But I still think that. um, And then there's there's a conundrum here, which is, of course, that the agreement itself uh, was actually the ultimately validated by the people in a referendum. At what point does does any kind of tweaking that you might do actually call into question the, that the need to go back to the people again, which of course would be a whole new complexity uh, in terms of a, a new referendum. So, yes, can could you imagine, you imagine a referendum? Yeah, exactly. On the Good Friday, uh, yes, could you imagine a referendum on an agreement part two without out yes. at the same time looking to have a referendum on a Ireland? Exactly. Exactly. We're, we're we're very much coming to the end of our time, yes. so I, I'd like each of you just in a couple of sentences to say, but both, what's your most vivid memory of the whole talks process, and secondly, what are you personally? proudest of? Well, my most vivid memory, Roy, is really the entire final night, um, uh, and I've devoted a chapter to it in in, in, in my book. Um, I'll never forget that. Um, just the the drama of it, the frustrations, the ebbing and flowing, and then this strange, surreal uh, Good Friday morning, the snow swirling around. I think we'll all remember that uh, forever. So that that's my most vivid memory. There were a few others, but but if I think of the Good Friday Agreement, I instantly think of that long night. In terms of what I'm personally proudest of, I mean... Uh, I, and I know you're a good civil servant. And uh, it's all, it's all yes. teamwork. So allowing but, for... But, but what you personally okay. think... I suppose in, in, one, in one sentence, Roy, I, I, I would like to think that I managed to keep the British government on the page, on the same page as us over a period of several years. Now, that implies a a Herculean effort. But the the difficulty was that you had uh, a a British government which was under pressure from the Unionists. And if you ask me what what am I proud of, it is that I think over a, a couple of years, we did manage to build up quite a degree of 
consensus between that British government, vulnerable and all as it was to unionist pressure, and then you had the Tony Blair government, which still remained vulnerable, even though numerically it didn't have to be, but it was still oddly susceptible to unionist pressure. So I'd like to think that I played my part in keeping the two governments on the same page, and obviously it's a page that uh, was was written by us. And, and may I say in that connection that uh, Sean Higgin, uh, I think, needs to be remembered uh, uh, for the phenomenal contribution he made in the earlier landmark documents, which crucially set out the kind of the uh, the agreed position of the two governments on those constitutional changes, we were, uh, constitutional issues we were talking about earlier. Yes, very important to mention Sean O'Higgin. He, he was the head of the Anglo-Irish division for 60 years, 91 to 97, and then he went off to be ambassador to Washington, replacing Dermot Gallagher, who came back. And I always thought that the particular gifts of the two men were particularly suited to the phases of the, of the talks. Tim, same question to you, very briefly. Um, most vivid memory and proudest achievement. Um, I, and I'd just like to echo what you said about uh, both Sean O'Higgin and Dermot Gallagher. I mean, they were giant civil servants and I think the whole, the, the country owes them a, a huge debt along with others as well. But I think those two leadership figures for us were were, uh, were so profound. I, I, I would... Um, I would share David's one, but I think it was the it was the uh, the the last night was 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 epic. My mo- most vivid memory. I I would say I would say as well that the George Mitchell uh, um, de- deadline moment that that was an incredible uh, to be there for that and and uh, the 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 cat you know the the catalyzation shall we say that that engendered because I don't think Rory any of us we, we practically didn't sleep from that moment onwards and I think we worked pretty much continuously I think it was about 20 days or something or um, 18 or 19 days uh, working out so that's that 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 the George Mitchell kind of deadline moment which kicked off the, the final piece and the final night actually I would say you know you were saying about teamwork we were all part of a, a team there and that was it was it was it was phenomenal to be part of all of that of course we were and we were all um, desperately seeking to do this we can interesting I would say for me personally to being truthful the 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 most the significant moment was actually almost like the extension of the agreement to working with you actually on the on the cross-border bodies subsequently we had to do so we had to do a very elaborate and kind of complex negotiation didn't we uh, uh, subsequently after it ran basically from May 1998 after the referendum all the way through to March uh, of 1999 when the um, when the agreement between the British and Irish governments on the establishment of cross-border bodies was finalised and then we had to if you recall uh, we had to s- sort of steer the that agreement through legislation in the Dáil and Shannon. Uh, so that was a huge piece of work. That that really, So I think personally, I'd be probably proudest of, uh, and you were very closely involved with me in, in that. And that that for me uh, was just personally. Well, well, thank you very much, uh, David Donoghue and Tim O'Connor. Um, it's been a, a great conversation, I think. I, I hope our listeners uh, get some sense of what life was like in the corridors of Ivy House. And there was certainly never any shortage of lively debate. Um, but at the same time, I think, and again, Tim is making this point, you know, there was a legion of civil servants um, in, involved um, at different levels and in different ways uh, in our embassies in Washington and in, in London, for example, as well, which we haven't mentioned. Uh, but at the at the end of the day, it was still a relatively small number of people who were in the room or outside the room. Uh, and I hope, as I say, we've conveyed some picture of this. And I can, again, warmly recommend David's book uh, to those of you who want to learn more 
about the, the way the negotiations actually work. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Roy. Great pleasure. Thank you, Roy. ARANS stands for Analysing and Researching Ireland, North and South. It's a joint initiative of the Royal Irish Academy, which is the premier all-island scholarly institution, and the University of Notre Dame's Keogh-Nocton Institute of Irish Studies, which is itself part of the Keogh School of Global Affairs. It was established in 2020 with the objective, especially at that time in a post-Brexit context, of producing authoritative, independent and non-partisan analysis and research across the full range of relevant constitutional, institutional and social issues. And in fact, over the last couple of years, uh, we've covered uh, a quite remarkable range of subjects. And the research can be found in the Journal of Irish Studies in International Affairs, which is published by the Royal Irish Academy, and access to which is free to all online. Uh, The aim is to be scholarly, uh, but also accessible and relevant. Publications began to appear in early 2021, um, and this podcast also began uh, in 2021 in June. I hope that you've enjoyed the podcast you just listened to, and I also hope that you will find others uh, of interest um, on our website, which is aaronsproject.com, and also that you listen out for future podcasts, which are normally dropped on the first Thursday of every month. Thanks very much for listening.